The first chapter, chapter 44 uh, of, of the Second Chronicles that we're going to be covering uh, this morning has several sections. The first one is the making of the brass sea. And of course, it's just interesting how we've been going back and forth from Wednesdays to Sundays, if you come on Wednesdays, that we're talking about the tabernacle on Wednesdays and the temple here on Sundays. And so uh, some of the dimensions change from a smaller sea for the tabernacle to a larger sea. They call it a sea. It's a bath. Um, it's about 15 feet across, made of bronze. They cast it. Uh, in other words, they poured the bronze in this clay area outside of town in a valley, um, and then they carry it and get it there, and they they do all the castings of all the things we're going to describe this morning out in this valley. And these are huge, huge items, solid brass, and uh, we get the dimensions of that and so on. But this first section, verses 1 through 5, is about this bath, basically, and this is where the priests would wash. So on Wednesday evenings, when we talk about the bath, it's a smaller one where they wash their hands and feet. This one they can actually climb into and actually wash themselves completely. Okay, so things have changed. Everything's getting a little bit larger here. Um, but the same purpose, to remind you that you need to be clean before you come to uh, the Lord. You have to offer up on the bronze altar the sacrifices needed for your sin, but then you also need to be washed and cleansed and allow yourself to be recognizing that you're dirty is the whole point of this. And this is a reminder, a physical reminder for the priest. God's not actually concerned with them exfoliating before they come before the Lord. It's a reminder for them to know that they need to be cleansed. You need to come holy. Nothing should come into the presence of God that's unholy. And so to know that about ourselves, to the priest, for the priest to know that about themselves is, is the first step in drawing near to God that I need to be cleansed, that I'm in a constant state of decay, that there's sin in my life. And to come into his presence, into holiness, I've got to deal with these things first. And so that's what this bath is all about. Moreover, he made a bronze altar, 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. So, And he made the sea of cast bronze. I'm not going to read all the way through it. We want to breeze through somewhat through four and five, because six is where I want to spend the time this morning. But this brass sea, this bull that he's made, stood on top in verse four of 12 oxen. They were cast of bronze as well. Three would look one way, north, south, east, and west, until you get to the number of 12. And it would set on this, and then there's a sort of a step system where you would climb up into this bath is what it's for. And so that's those first five verses, the sea. In verse six, he begins to talk about um, the smaller baths. There's going to be 10 smaller baths, uh, five on one side, five on the other. And those for the washing of the sacrifices. You know, they had to wash them and then they would burn them. And so there was these baths on either side that the priests would wash off the sacrifice before they would actually bring it to the bronze altar for burning. And so he made 10 lavers and put five on the right side, five on the left to wash them, such things as they offered for the burnt offerings, they would wash in them. And he describes those items. In verse 9, the doors, these are the bronze doors to the, uh, to the outer courts he would make. Furthermore, he made the court of the priests, the great court, and doors for the court. And he overlaid these doors with bronze. And he set the sea on the right side toward the southeast. And so we're getting a picture of what this temple would look like. Very, very large, very grand. Um, everything was big. 
In verse 11, Huram, he was the guy that was asked to come help. We talked about that last week a little bit. Could you come help with your artistic skills on how to carve and work the metal and all? And it describes him and what he's done. I've, I've made all the things, it says. Then Huram made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. There was a lot of stuff that would have to be made for this, not just the items that we talk about, the furniture, but you've got to have pots that would hold the ashes and shovels that were set aside for those ashes, and you would fill those pots up and go clean out the ashes and all. And there was a process to this all. So it was a lot of things to the point where they had to have storerooms for all these items. And so he describes them quickly, shovels and bowls, and uh, finished doing all the work for uh, Solomon's house. He'd make the pillars that were outside. And so the last section or last part of this chapter is an overview of all the things he made, the pillars, the capitals on top of those pillars, the carts, the labors, the, the bowls, and, and all the things that he made. He got it all done. Now, the reason the writer's doing this is to show us that it's all finished. These are the last few things to be made where we've accomplished everything. And now they're going to set the table. They're going to put everything where it belongs. Everything's going to be in position. All the bowls are now filled with the water for washing. The big bowls filled with the, with the water for, for the priests to hold about 24,000 gallons of water, this big 15-foot across bath. And it's all set. It's all ready. And so this overview shows us that it's complete now. Now comes the dedication. Now comes the use, the purpose in chapter 5, it begins, so all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. So he brought in David's things that he had prepared before Solomon began building. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. So this is where they actually move in God or ask God to come into the place. Now, we don't have a lot of grandeur anymore. We don't have a lot of pomp. Uh, there's not a lot of ceremony. There's some, but as our, our church is much more relaxed than a lot. You'll go to different denominations in the Christian faith, and you'll see that they have a lot a more liturgical side of things, a more uh, uh, just that, ceremonial. And, and sometimes we may, you know, well, there ought not be ceremonial, there needs to be a relationship. And true, but there's a healthy respect also that comes with an understanding that we're about to come into the presence of the Lord. There's a healthy respect for knowing that what we're doing here, we're not alone in the room. It's not just us having a, a, a self-help meeting. We're not a club where there's a gavel and we've got a board and we make decisions. And there's a lot more to it. The Lord's in the room. And from a casual aspect, we assume everybody in the room understands that, that this place is set aside, dedicated to serving God, and that we've come here to worship him because of what he's done for us on the cross was reading a, a conversation between a believer and a more liberal believer. And I noticed throughout the conversation as they were bringing up points that both were arguing or convincing one another, maybe that's a better way to put it, from the wrong side. 
And it got me to thinking, I make a lot of assumptions that everybody just kind of knows you need to come from a biblical side of things to come against the world or to talk about sin or any other subject. You have to start on the Bible side from God's word is where we convince from um, and what we convince for, because we stand as ambassadors for that only for God and for what his word says. We we don't jump on the other side from the worldly side and try to argue point to point that that's not what as Christians we're called to do. And so when I read this this morning, as I'm going through chapter five, and I see that all the elders have come, all the people have come to humble themselves before God, to bring him in, there's an understanding, a healthy ceremony about it, where everybody understands this is a big deal, what's about to happen here. When we open up God's word every Sunday and Wednesday morning here, and also on our own time, there needs to be not necessarily ceremony, but a healthy understanding of what I'm about to do. I'm about to read the word of God that's absolutely perfect and true and comes from him and is written by his Holy Spirit. Everything I'm about to read when I open this book is absolutely true and without fault and without blemish. There's nothing wrong with it. It is the source of truth in this world. And anything that comes against it or opposite it, argues against it, is not truth. And that's what I saw in this conversation. They weren't resting upon God's word and what he says as absolute truth. They were coming from another standpoint. They were arguing the morality of something based off of worldly points of view. And they were, she was losing horribly. And so I guess I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. As you drive into this place, it's, it needs to be understood that all, how many acres we have now, I don't know, is dedicated to serve Jesus Christ and him only for no other purpose. To bring him glory, to bring him honor. It's a place of beauty, hopefully. We hope we keep it that way. Um, and when I come to this place, I'm willingly driving into a location where I know that that's where my heart needs to be also. I need to come and worship God in spirit and truth. That's why I'm coming here. Otherwise, don't come here. That's the point. I've come to seek God with his people. We come in here and we worship God because of what he's done for us. What has he done for us? He's died on the cross for our sins. The Father separate. we were separated from the Father because of our sins, our disobedience to him, and we know our disobedience based off of God's word, and that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, and we come simply out of respect, honor, and gratitude for that act, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we worship. That's why we come here. We don't come here to figure out what we're supposed to do next necessarily. That may come from the act of worship. We don't direction, um, uh, asking for stuff, whatever. That all happens, I guess, in the midst of it. But that's why we come. And if that's all that happens here, it's we're absolutely fulfilled our purpose in worshiping because of what he's done for us. Now, the problem with the conversation that was happening was that the liberal Christian was stating that one aspect wasn't sin anymore. 
or isn't sin or should have never been called sin. And the other conservative Christian that was trying to convince the other one wasn't coming from God's word saying, well, that's sin. It says so in God's word. They were afraid to say it out loud. They were embarrassed. Of course, I wanted to jump in, but I didn't because it's not my conversation. Although it is publicly being aired, I didn't feel it right for me to jump in and say, step aside. (laughs) You got to start from the basics. See, if what you're saying as a liberal Christian isn't sin, first of all, how do you know it's not sin? And if it's not sin, how do you know that anything else is sin? Because the only reason I know sin is because of what God's word says. Otherwise, I don't know what's sin and what isn't sin. It's only based off God's word. And the sin you're arguing is clear in scripture that it is sin. And so when you discount that sin and say, that's not sin, that's a cultural issue, that's just something that's happened and we've been wrong about it the whole time, then everything else is open to debate. And that's where the conservative Christian failed because they don't stand upon God's word as truth, regardless of how that's going to affect your reputation as as a person. It's sin. If it isn't sin, going with that argument then all the other things are, then why did Christ die? Because once you, they don't understand the progression of things. Once you say that's not sin, although clearly mentioned in God's word, everything else in God's word is open to discussion. Therefore, all sin is subject to opinion. Therefore, Christ didn't die for a specific sin. Therefore, Christ died in vain. Therefore, Christ didn't need to come. And we come here to worship a God that did nothing for us. By this one small argument, You've defeated Christianity, and we need to understand that as Christians. that we, This isn't so that we can walk around and just, this is the thing, from the liberal point of view, just love. To tell someone that their sin isn't sin anymore isn't love. The acceptance of sin in my life or in your life isn't love. For God to not pay the price for our sin, he demonstrated that for us, how big a deal it is, that his son died on the cross for us. That's how wrong it was. That's how unacceptable it was that my son has to die for what you've chosen to do in rebellion against me. We have to understand that. That's where we have to come from. We talk about war a lot in here, and I think maybe that's misunderstood a lot when I bring up Marines or Army or anything like that. Um, I only use that as an example because Paul does, but I think sometimes it gets lost in translation a little bit. Like uh, it's like something about machoism or, you know, (laughs) it's not, it's a, it's a good example though. I've seen a lot of guys in the military um, who go into a battle or war. And I think that's where we get a lot of PTSD, not knowing where they're fighting from or for they've been taught how, They know how to shoot a gun. They know how to put in a claymore. They know how to put a bangle or torpedo in, or they know how to set up wire entanglements, and they know how to kill people. Great. But if you don't know why you're doing it or from what purpose you're going here to do that, that's when confusion shuts in because you begin to look at the other person across from you and say, why are we even doing this? If you don't know why you're doing it or from where you're fighting from, then you have moral problems on the battlefield and you come home with guilt, shame, and you have no idea what you were doing there. I've just 
an unleashed murderer upon this earth. I think that's one of our biggest problems in the military right now is the people aren't being taught what they're fighting for or from where they're fighting. That being said, Christians have the same problem. We argue for argument's sake. We make our pleas based off of our opinions and we're not knowing where we're arguing from or what we're arguing for. And it's for God's word. It's for righteousness. Standing up for righteousness isn't just a platitude or something that we say. There is righteousness. It's defined for us. It's written down for us. God shows us exactly what righteousness is. And Christians are to be on the side of righteousness and to argue from that standpoint. That's where we come from. And trying to bring people to the side of righteousness. Standing up for righteousness is all we do as Christians. When we say that that's not unrighteousness over here, we've we've lost. Okay. There's a lot of ceremony in chapter five. And I think when I open up God's word and we open up God's word, since we don't have a temple, we don't have bronze doors, we don't have labors that we get into and bathe ourselves with, and we don't have the robes on. We read about all that though, since those are all symbols and pictures of what we're reading in the new Testament through Jesus Christ. We need to have the same reverence and respect that these folks did. As I talk about the righteousness of Christ. As I talk about the washing away of my sins, as I talk about uh, the sacrifice of the lamb to take away the sin of the world, I need to have the same understanding, ceremony, respect as they do here in this chapter. And so that's why I wanted to start with that long tirade or instruction. However, hopefully it was more instruction and not a tirade. But as we read this, keep that in mind. Solomon assembled all the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the Ark. Then they brought up the Ark, the tabernacle of meeting, the tent, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. The priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord in its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And there are there to this day, they are there to this day, excuse me. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there in Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. So there they are. The the tablets are in there. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their division. So it wasn't like their turn. Everybody showed up for this first meeting, this first event. And the Levites who were the singers... All those of Asaph and Haman and uh, Jeduthun, I think, or Jeduthun, uh, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, 
and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanks and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What a beautiful moment that must have been. What an overwhelming moment. And in Psalm 22, verse 3, it speaks about God inhabiting the praises of his people. When we sing out, I, I hope, I, see, I think worship begins way before I leave the house on Sunday mornings or Wednesdays. Preparing my heart, praying, and, and I think that's why most of us get attacked in the house. Where are the kids' shoes? How come the car doesn't start? How, where'd this flat tire come from? Where's a, the battle begins right there. Because if you get your heart right, if you get yourself prepared to come in, quietly sit here and fellowship too, don't get me wrong, I don't want, eh, you said we can't talk, of course you can. Fellowship's part of it. But the ten get re- then to get ready to open up your mouth and sing praises to God, you're there. You're ready. You're prepared. The table is set in my heart and also in here. Hopefully the, the chairs we got set up from Operation Christmas Child yesterday. We swept the floors. The music was ready. The, the worship team had practiced. Everybody was ready. And we come in and we begin to sing. And God begins to inhabit the praises of his people. But my heart has to be there in the song. Uh, my phone gets in the way a lot of times of me fellowshipping with my kids or my wife. It just does. It's a very important part of my job and what I do and what I do for a living outside of this place is, well, you kind of got to be ready to, to do whatever. But with that, there's a lot of extracurricular activity that I do too, scrolling through things that are worth scrolling through. And sometimes I find myself doing that. And I take my phone and I toss it across the couch. Just stay over there. You devilish thing you, you know, and then look at my kids or my wife in the face or whatever to be present with those who are present with me to not be absent in the same room, you know, and I, and I'm not one of those guys, just put your phones down and dang phones, you know, well, we've always had distractions. This is just the newest one. You've seen how many 1950s TV shows with the husband, with the newspaper and the pipe. Okay, that's the phone of the 1950s. It's no different. Mm -hmm. And not listening to his wife ask questions. We've always had problems with focusing and being present. That being said, when I come in this place on a Sunday or a Wednesday, I want to be present with the Lord. I want my heart ready. I want my mind focused. When I sing songs, I want to remember the lyrics or at least be aware of what I'm singing. Because I tell you, and maybe you've all been through it, I can do that. I could sing through three or four songs and not know what I've said to God at all because I've thought about this or that or the other thing while I'm singing. I want to be present. And these guys are very present. God has inhabited the praises of his people. They've prepared the table. They've set it up, and God has shown up in the cloud. It's beautiful. 
verse 1 of chapter 6. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Welcome, Lord. That's his welcome. We're glad you're here. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while, at, while, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth by my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from the tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler. Over my people Israel, yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build the temple for my name, you did well, and that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. God counts it as righteousness for David to, in his heart, want to build a temple for God. A lot of times, there's a lot of ministry we'd love to do, or there's a lot of things we'd like to change or be effective. And the fact that it's in your heart, although you may not have had the opportunity to do that in reality or be a doer of it, God sees that your heart was, I really wanted to. I desired that. I tried, and it, I don't know. You know, I'm glad that was in your heart, David. I, I'm happy. You you. You don't get to do that, though, but I'm glad your mind is there. I'm glad your heart is there. God gives him credit for that. It goes, it's accounted as if he had done it, you know, and that's encouraging. And so Solomon says, my dad wanted to, but he didn't get to, but it was in his heart to do it, but I got to. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. Now that's a lot. (laughs) I, I, um, there's a lot of ways to teach this, but one of the things that came out to me and probably I think that's all I have for you this morning out of that section, out of this section is to look at how important Israel is to God. And we say this all the time here, but we need to support Israel. And those who support Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And a lot of people have heard that and, and, and somewhat believe that. And yet, out of their mouths come things that are absolutely blasphemous against God's people. These are still his people. He didn't do all of this. He hasn't done all this, and the rest of the chapter will will prove this, to forsake them and to go on to another group. He hasn't. He is using the church, and we are his people. But we're grafted into this branch. We're grafted into this root system that was already established and has not been pulled up in the nation of Israel. They're still his people. And as someone who's been grafted into this situation right here, I'm not a part of this, but I was grafted into this. It wasn't intended for me, but we brought in, we've been brought into this situation. I need to be, have a healthy respect for what I've been brought into. And that the nation of Israel is not forsaken by God. 
I need to be careful about the way I use the term Jew. Nothing wrong with calling Jewish people Jews. They are Jews. They call themselves Jews. They're Hebrews. They're uh, Israeli. Those words are fine, but with respect. They're not meant to be slang terms or to be used as a derogatory uh, example of someone who doesn't like to spend money. And it's, it's understandable until you know you don't know. And so some of the things that we've grown up with and the terms that we've used, we've heard and we've adopted. But if you've heard today, then you need to stop using those terms and understand that we're talking about the apple of his eye, the nation of Israel. And we're going to read that here. And I hope we hear it. Verse 12, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands for Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. So he's in a little bit of a stage here. That's only so that the rest of the congregation can see him. He's not doing it to exalt himself, make that clear. But because what he's about to do needs to be seen by the nation of Israel. Remember who Solomon is. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the leader. He's robed in all these amazing, you know, well, there he is. You know, you'd spot him a mile away. There's, there's our monarch. And he got on top of this platform in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, and then he knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He places himself in a position of, sub, of submission to the Lord. And he wants the whole nation of Israel to see their king on his knees with his hands outspread towards him, towards the Lord, in humble submission to God. So I may be over you, Solomon says, as your king, but understand that I am under him. Therefore, we are all under him. And we all need to have this place. And I'm not better than you. I humble myself before the Lord. And he says this, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant, David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant, David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, that they may, or that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. That's the first thing he says. That you'd fulfill that, and that I would be one of, he understands that I need to keep your laws in order for me to keep this position. Second thing, but will God indeed dwell with men on earth, as he looks at the temple, as he understands the ceremony, and everybody's a little awestruck by the size and the color gold and the beauty of the temple. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. He screams that, that's an exclamation point, from the top of his lungs on top of this thing, so the rest of Israel can understand our God is way too big for this tiny little thing we've just built. Although huge to us, and magnificent, it's just a symbol. There's no way it could contain him. Yet, regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen 
to the cry of the prayer of your servant, um, which your servant is praying before you. And here's what I want. There's what I'm asking, God. That your eyes may be upon or be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you uh, said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. It's all this is. It's a, if you ever use Google Maps, you drop a pin, right? If you need to give someone directions, you can drop a pin right to where you are, even give them your location, and they can GPS right to you is the idea. That's all this temple is. We've dropped a pin in Jerusalem, a big gold shiny pin to be sure. But I want your eyes to always be looking at this place. I pray that you would always have your eye on us, and and he does. That's why he says through his prophets, Israel is the apple of my eye. I've got my eye on you always, always. That's what this place is for. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel, When they pray towards this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. We're going to ask for a lot of forgiveness from this pin drop, from this beautiful temple we've built. I pray that you forgive us. We're going to need it. This is when they're at their best. Solomon knows who we are, who he is. And I think that's clear that we need to know who we are. And that although we have great moments with the God, with, with mountaintop experiences, there are going to come times when I'm going to come on my knees groveling, and I pray that you hear me. He doesn't require that, I know. We can boldly stand and come before the throne. We don't have to do this. But in my heart, there's a lot of repentance and sorrow and a lot of knee standing, <laughs> I guess, and hands outstretched. When we come here, God, would you forgive us? And he begins to go through some of the things we're going to be asking for forgiveness for. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before you on the altar of this temple. In other words, when we bring a civil court case to you and we don't know who the and they both promise and swear to God that they're telling the truth. Then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. All Israel is hearing this. When we bring civil cases to you that we can't decide on our own, we pray that you would judge and that you would bring wrath, retribution, and that you would bring justice to those who've been wronged. When it comes to war, or if your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and return and confess your name and pray and make supplications before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. When we blow it, when we sin and we try to go out and fight and expect you to come alongside of us and fight and we fail and we lose and we realize why we've lost is because we fought something on our own in the sin of our own hearts, we pray that you forgive us. When it's dry out, when we have dry times, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants for uh, your people, Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to the people as an inheritance. When it's dry and we figure out why it's dry and we repent of our sins 
And we see that you're trying to teach us to walk in the right ways because we walked in the wrong ways and we found ourselves in a drought and we repent and turn towards you. Would you forgive us in our weakness? When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you give to our fathers. Would you hear us when we're weak and broken down? Moreover, this is where we come in, (laughs) Gentiles. Concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, When they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and to fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. I want you to hear the prayers of the Gentiles too. That's not new. It's not New Testament only. That's always been the case. There's always been a a place at the table for the Gentile, sort of, outer court. But we're second, and that's the point of having an outer court and an inner court. Inner court was for the Israelis, and the outer court was for the Gentiles. We're second. We need to know that. That helps us get a good understanding of Israel and the importance that they play. Verse 34. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards this city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. Now, this is for the benefit of the hearer, not just for God. When we're in a foreign land, and we're facing the temple, we're facing east, or facing up, which is what they would say, we're turning towards Jerusalem, depending on where they were in the world. We pray that you'd still hear our prayer, even there. Even though we're not on site, we understand We need to face Jerusalem. And would you hear us when we do that? There's a respect there. And the rest of the people would have picked up on that. Oh, yeah, he can hear us anywhere. We're not out of his sight. He's not the God of the valley. He's not the God of the mountains. He's not the God of this geographic location. He's the God of all. You know, they would have figured that out. When they sin against you, not if, but when, for there is no one who does not sin, There's Romans Road right there, Old Testament, and everybody sins. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves, sometimes it takes that. We've got to get taken captive before we come to ourselves. In the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have done wrong, and have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart, and with all their soul, in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive, and pray toward the land which you've given their fathers, so they're in the foreign land, speaking of Babylon, you know, that's going to come. And we're praying back towards Israel, where we were taken from, we pray that you'd hear us. The city which you have uh, chosen, 
and toward the temple which I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Please hear us, God. And he closes with this. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed, Remember the mercies of your servant, David. What a beautiful dedication there. What a beautiful opening statement to what everybody needs to know. And you hope God understands, you know, I mean, he does. But what this place is for. When you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's come into your heart. You've become a born-again believer. You've not just taken an oath I promise to love God. No, you need to be born again. It's different. When you've been born again, you've invited the Lord into your heart. And he dwells there. And I think as we read through these things, there's a lot of furnishings that need to be moved out of our house, this heart. And there's a lot of God's furnishings that need to be moved in. And the place needs to be set apart for him. There aren't rooms that he can't go into. There aren't rugs that we just can't seem to part with. Good old chair we're used to sitting in. It all needs to go. We need to let God do that. We need to let him furnish his house now, since we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the way he wants to furnish it, and so that it's holy and set apart for him. Whenever I try to bring something in, and they will, they'll try to bring in profane things into the temple of the Lord, and they accomplish it. That is their downfall. When they say those things are okay, that they can be assimilated in, that they'll go in without being seen or without affecting the holy things of the temple, it's just not true. They taint everything. It ruins everything. It's a barrier. And so periodically we need to go through and clean house. We need to look at our hearts and look at the things that we brought in or the things that haven't been moved in that should be moved in. Things that we've forgotten to do. Maybe they have the 12 things in the temple that you do to come before God. You don't do half of them anymore. I don't go to the bronze altar anymore. I just kind of walk around and go to the sea and get a drink. It's not for drinking. It's for washing. Well, whatever it's for. I forgot what it's for. I need to go back to some of the basics that God has told me to do. When you come before me, keep in mind these things. A little bit of ceremony is okay. A little bit of understanding of the holiness of what we're about to do when we come into the presence of God and open his word and to receive it, to receive it as if it's gold. As if it's coming straight from his mouth, because it is. And to believe it with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. It's, a, it's an amazing book that you put together. Over thousands of years, and 40 different authors, it all ties together perfectly. We thank you for that, Lord. It's deep, it's wide, it's inexhaustible in its knowledge and wisdom. Um, but that's our goal. We want to exhaust it. We want to see if we can know everything about you, all the things about you. And so Lord, help us to never be moved away from your word. To never understand it's the standard. Your son Jesus is the standard of righteousness. 
what you've said. You've magnified your word above your name. It's, it's above all. It is truth. And anything that comes against it is against truth. It's our gauge. So help us to know it, to understand it, that we wouldn't bypass it and through our own intellect and our own worldly wisdom try to cast down arguments. But from your word and for your word, for your glory, help us to know where to argue from, where to convince from, where to draw people from, to bring them into your presence, to bring them into holiness, to bring them into being conformed into your image, holiness, perfection. By the Holy Spirit, you'll do that. So I pray this week, as you give us opportunities to stand up for righteousness, to stand upon your word, to know in our hearts, as we've read through your word, that these things will not be tolerated by the world. They'll not be just accepted. They'll not just come. But there is a standing that needs to take place. There is a a standing up for righteousness that needs to happen regardless of the personal injury it's going to bring upon us. So Lord, help us to be good ambassadors for you. Help us to understand what family we're a part of and to walk that way, carrying your name wherever we go and to not be ashamed of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.